Noir Radio Theater presents Four Stories. I grew up in Fall River, just a little ways west of Cape Cod. I went to high school in the 60s. Yeah, sex, drugs, rock and roll, baby. Well, I had no idea what I wanted to do except to have fun. I went to college because everybody else did. I had a different major every semester. Lost, miserable, and depressed, I left school after three years and moved back home to Fall River. I got a job downtown in the Mill District at a roast beef sandwich shop run by a guy named Nutsy Balzano. Yeah, that's right, Nutsy Balzano. I mean, what kind of name is that? I'll tell you, working there was the education of a lifetime. Our customers ranged from white-collar professionals to professional thieves and prostitutes. We had sandwiches going out the front door, TVs, jewelry, and cash coming in the back door. I once asked Nutsy why the labels on our cartons of roast beef all said the Ritz-Carlton Boston on them. He looked up at me and said, Halt, shut up and put them in the fridge. Nutsy was a hard ass on the outside and a caring mushball on the inside. He was 20 years older than me, had a bullet hole right through his shoulder, and we came from different freaking planets. He wanted me to get my shit together and find a direction for my life. He would say to me over and over and over again, usually with the tip of his shoe for emphasis, Paul, you can make something of yourself. Get the hell out of Fall River. You're a smart kid. Get into something you love. He found out that I stole, I mean borrowed, my dad's camera and was really interested in photography. He suggested that we do a promotion on Thursdays where I would put up a white bedsheet in the corner and take customers' portraits. They would come back a week later to pick up the print I made and hopefully buy another sandwich. Due to Nutsy's tip-of-the-shoe persuasion and also to just shut him up, I enrolled in the New England School of Photography in Boston. When I got there, I decided to be a disciple of the god of black-and-white photography, Ansel Adams, and his very scientific system of black-and-white film exposure, development, and printmaking. And you know what? I came alive. I was in glorious rapture. This was my kind of learning. It was sensual, hands-on. I could touch it, taste it, feel it, smell it. I spent a year and a half in the dark, literally, learning his system. One day, as I was outside the darkroom admiring a beautiful set of negatives, this guy walks up and says he is looking for Paul Dunn. His name was Al Fisher and said he was an advertising photographer who just moved to Boston from New York City. He was looking for someone to set up a black-and-white film line in his darkroom, and the school said to find me. I went to his studio the next day, and I was not prepared for the show. I had been literally in the dark like a mole for the past year and a half, and when the door opened to his studio, he was shooting a Land Leopard Jeans catalog. And wow, 
There were tables of food set up. The music was blasting. And these models, these models were running around whipping their clothes off. Holy shoot, this is advertising? He had to practically push me down the stairs to the darkroom. He hired me that week to be his assistant, and for the next four years, traveled around the world, teaching me everything about advertising photography. He would share how and why he did a job the way he did, what made it unique, ergo, why he was a superstar, and eventually had me do a good amount of the photography when the clients weren't there. This was an education you can't pay for, and he did it because he liked me and wanted me to succeed. When I left him to go out on my own, he asked some of his ad agency buddies to hire me to do some of their work, and they did. Here I am now, looking at the impact these two men have had on my life and the different directions it took by meeting each of them. I think of Nutsy as the instigator and Al as the booster rocket. There is that saying, it takes a village to raise us. But for me, it has taken two villages, Nutsy and Al. Late April, 1970, a warm, sweet evening breeze coming through the big windows of the University of Cincinnati Library. Marble floors, high ceilings, a very formal, hushed place. A few dedicated souls studying away at the oak tables. I'm studying, but pretty far from a dedicated style. Whoever scheduled the beginning of spring and the start of exams at the same time is sadistic. I'm probably facing another failed semester. I'm fairly intelligent, it's not that. It's, I'm 19. I feel so lost amongst the other 27,000 students. I don't know why I'm here. Then, from way across the room, I see someone enter, someone I know and like, Eric Wood. He spots me and saunters over to my table. He has a big stack of books and papers. Hi, Eric. Got an exam tomorrow, too? Yep. Chemistry and calculus. Ouch. I keep telling myself to get cracking, Eric. Have a seat. Maybe between the two of us, we'll get the job done. I push a chair out with my foot. <sighs> it's worth a try. Dorm room's having a party. At least it's quiet here. I've got a biology exam tomorrow. Who's your teacher? Dr. Bradley. Ah, uh, now it's my turn to say ouch. He's a bear. Yes, a boring bear. I ask you, Eric, how can someone make biology boring? How is that possible? But he does. Every lecture. He stays up late at night working on it. And it doesn't help that the auditorium is packed. Kids falling asleep, joking around. It's a nightmare. Yeah, I don't know how I got through it myself. We talk a bit more. He's sweet and smart and nice. He's got this black, curly, wild hair and brown eyes. He has a girlfriend, a real straight sorority girl. I can't picture the two of them together, but what do I know? As we talk, I can tell that he likes me. 
We better get started, eh, Jane? Eric and I open our books. Then it starts. A, a little short laugh. Almost a giggle. He started it. He said later that I started it. <laughs> but all I know is the giggles evolve into bellows. Real laughs. Belly ones. We are out of control. I am screeching. Tears flowing. Slobber pouring out of my mouth. He starts pounding the table trying to stop laughing. Our laughter fills the whole room. People move away from us. A librarian is going to come in here any minute. We both know it, but we can't stop. But finally, I rest my head on the table, exhausted. I look over at Eric. He smiles. I see the librarian in the door, glaring at us. Eric sees her, too. We go back to our books. She leaves. Then I burst out again, laughing even harder this time. This gets him going, and we're off and running. <laughs> then slowly we get down to the giggles, then a chuckle or two, and then the end. We wipe our eyes on our T-shirts. It's over for good this time. What was that? I don't know, Eric. I've never had that happen, whatever that was that happened. We're kind of stunned. We just stare at each other. Well, Jane, that was fun. What should we do next? I just look at him. I know the answer, but I couldn't let myself say it. He's got that sorority girlfriend. I can't chance a rejection. Not after the time we've had here. I guess he doesn't want to risk it either. He sighs, gathers up his books and papers. Give old Dr. Bradley's exam hell for me. Good luck on your exam, too, Eric. Yeah, thanks. And well, see you around the campus. I watch him go. I should feel sad, but I'm not. As I walk back to my dorm, I realize that I am skipping. I'm facing a night of studying, and I'm happy. And for weeks later, I found myself laughing a lot more. Suddenly, I started making friends. I began to feel at home with my 27,000 other fellow students. Every once in a while, I'd spot Eric on the campus. He'd give me a playful shove, and we'd laugh as we passed each other. Neither of us had forgotten that night. That night, I learned that I could let myself loose right in a marbled-floored library while others were sitting there staring at me. I could make a real spectacle of myself and after I was done, I'd come back to normal, only happier. And there was a person who liked me, even when I slobbered, who joined in with me. Maybe there were others who would too. Maybe this kind of thing, this letting myself do or say whatever pops up, being too much, maybe I could go with it more often. I've grown up and grown old now. I see there are still plenty of problems in the world, and I know there always will be. I also know there will always be laughter, friends, and people goofing with each other. Just goofing. Without that, I'd lose hope. To you, Eric Wood, wherever you are, I will remember, and thanks.
Anyone out there ever lose their keys? How about anybody who ever lose their glasses? Well, I'll bet there are not too many people out there that lose their car. Unfortunately, I'm one of them, and it happens all the time. So I went to the doctor. And the doctor, after listening to a couple of the episodes that had taken place, told me, you definitely have a problem. And I said, I know I have a problem. And he said, you have Carzheimer's disease. Well, I'm going to tell you about a couple of the incidents that happened that uh, gave the doctor the reason to give me that label or that uh, uh, disease that I've now been afflicted with for some time. The first incident occurred several years ago when I was traveling back and forth from my law practice to Le from Lexington to the Cape. And during that time period, many people often called me the Honda lawyer rather than the Lincoln lawyer because all of my law books and materials were always in the back seat. But during that time period, there was also uh, an accumulation of items that were in the front seat on the floor. Those were empty Diet Coke bottles, empty potato chip bags, candy wrappers, and an accumulation of things that would remind someone of a high school kid who was going on a road trip. So one day when I was driving from the Cape back up to Lexington and had to stop to get a, a Diet Coke to stay awake for the whole trip, I saw that there was a, a trash can right in front of where I parked the car. So I went in, I got the Diet Coke, I came out, and I told myself, take a minute, take this trash out of the front seat and stop having your car look like you're a high school kid. I opened the door, got down on my knees, and started retrieving all the Diet Coke bottles and candy wrappers and potato chips. And while I was doing it, uh, a nice woman came up to me and said, Sir, are you okay? And I said, Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. And then she said, Can I help you take some of those things out of the car? And I said, No, no, I'll be done in just a minute. And then she said to me, Well, I really want to thank you for cleaning out my car. At which point I turned my head, looked at her with a whole handful of trash in my hands, and said, I am sorry, but I believe now I have two choices. And she said, what's that, with a smile. I said, well, I said, I can either try to put these items back into the car on the floor where they were placed there, in case that was your intention to leave them, or I'd be glad to take them and put them into the trash take your car over to the side of the parking lot and do a power vac for having broken into your car. Another incident happened right about that time when I was going down to New York City to visit my son with my wife because he had tickets for a Red Sox-Yankee game at Yankee Stadium. We got there as soon as we could on a Thursday afternoon, parked the car in, an apart in a uh, garage right across the street, and I immediately took off on the 161st Street train to get to uh, the Bronx on time to see the game. We had a couple of great days down in New York, but on Sunday, it happened to be a very, very hot day, and my wife and I decided that we should try to get out of the city uh, early and avoid the traffic. So I went over to the parking lot, uh, went down to the attendant, and said, uh, we have a white Honda CRV with a Massachusetts license plate. 
uh, could you get it for us? And he said, well, do you have your ticket? I said, I really don't. I don't know where it is, but I'm sure you don't have any other cars with that uh, description if you could get it. And he said, sure, I'll be right back. About 15 minutes later, he came back and he said, sir, I'm very sorry, but the car you described is not in our lot. Uh, you feel free to go take a look to see if it's there, but I didn't see it. Well, I took a few minutes, went down, and sure enough, the car was not in the lot. Now, not being one to uh, get overly excited and realizing, look, if something happened, uh, it might have been stolen, we'd, have, we'd get insurance, it's not the end of the world. I said, okay. But then he said, can you try to make sure over in your room, perhaps, that the ticket is still not uh, around and you just overlooked it? I said, I'll be glad to do that. So I went across the street, emptied out the trash, which had similar empty Diet Coke bottles and other wrappers there. But sure enough, the ticket was there. I brought the ticket back to him and I said, well, I said, I don't know what good the ticket's going to do if the car's not here. He said, well, the white CRV Honda uh, is not here, but the ticket you have is for a black Honda Accord that's parked about 15 feet from us right now, uh, and that may be what you drove, at which point I realized, oh, that's right, we took the other car down for the weekend. Well, my wife had been standing up at the top of the ramp now for about 20 minutes in the sweltering heat. And she was watching all the cars come up and, and leave prior to ours, wondering what the heck was going on. Finally, she saw me drive up in the Honda Accord, uh, open the trunk, and tell her what happened. Well, as it turns out, we had taken a different car. I paid the attendant, drove the car up the ramp, and then was appropriately admonished for being an idiot by my wife who was sweltering in the heat. Perhaps cars can someday be reduced to articles that can be attached to a keychain. Until then, I'm going to have to need to budget some extra time to make sure that I can find my car. It had been a long day. I was very tired. I had been to a late rehearsal at a theater in Harwich. I had been one of the last people to leave the building and it was 10 o'clock at night. I just wanted to get home to West Barnstable. I was going down Upper County Road to get to Route 6. Nobody was around. The houses were all dark and there were no cars on the road. All was deserted. Up ahead in my headlights, I saw what looked like an animal laid across the middle of the road. Now, in my world, if an animal is in trouble, you do something about it. So I already knew I was going to stop. As I got closer, I realized that it wasn't one animal. There were two. And then when I finally got to them, I saw that it was a mother raccoon leaning over her baby, about a third of her size and trying to get him to move. The baby was slumped back on his haunches. When I rolled down my window, I could hear the noise. The mother was just ragging at the baby in mother raccoon language, and the baby was periodically chirping while the rest of its littermates were screeching for their mother from behind bushes by the side of the road. 
I must have scared the mother because she ran off, but the baby didn't move. I said, baby, you've got to get out of the road. Well, he didn't move. So I assumed that he must be hurt, and I wasn't leaving him there. I moved my car broadside across the road so no other cars coming either way could hit him while I figured this out. I assumed that he must have been hit by a car. I got out with my phone flashlight on and looked for any blood, wounds, scrapes, but there was nothing. Maybe he had been hit in the head, had broken bones or internal injuries. In any case, I had to get him someplace for help, where to take him. Then it hit me that there was a 24-hour emergency veterinary care hospital on my way to the highway. I had taken wildlife there before. Just then, a nice man in a pickup truck came along, stopped and asked if I needed any help with my car or the raccoon, and I thanked him and said that I was all set and that I had a plan, and he left. I got a blanket from my car and approached the raccoon very gently. I didn't want him to be startled and struggle, causing more harm to his injuries. I didn't want him to scratch or bite me, and I didn't want to catch any fleas or ticks. I did want him to feel safe and protected. He was very calm as I put him onto the back seat behind the driver's side. I got into the car and said, Okay, baby, we are going to get you some help. And off we went. We arrived at the animal hospital, and since it was after hours, the front door was locked. I rang the bell, and the receptionist came to the door and said, Can I help you? And I said, Why, yes. I have an injured baby raccoon in my car that I just got out of the road, and I would like to leave him with you. She just looked at me and said, No. Thinking she didn't understand, I said, I have left injured wildlife with you in the past, and Wildlife Rescue picks them up the next day. She said, That was who owned the practice before. We don't do that. Now remember... I was tired. I looked at her and said, you mean that you have the facility and ability and you won't help this animal? She looked warily at me and said, I will go ask the vet on duty. Now, I thought, we'll get some action. The veterinarian will help because that is what veterinarians are supposed to do. When she finally came back, she said, the vet says that we don't treat wildlife, and even if we did, we wouldn't treat raccoons because they carry rabies. Now, I know about rabies and the dangers involved, but this was a docile injured baby. Don't raccoons get injured and need help too? This felt like rabies discrimination to me. Obviously, there was no point in arguing with her, so I stomped back to my car in the parking lot but I wasn't giving up. I was going to find help for this baby. I called a friend who loves animals, didn't mind me calling her late at night, and has a connection with wildlife. I explained that this baby probably had internal injuries and could be in a life or death situation. She patiently explained that there were only two wildlife rescues on Cape Cod and I would have to call them. So I found the information and was sure that one of the rescues would have an emergency number to call if you had an animal in distress. But no, 
Both of them had very nice answering messages saying, anyone after hours with an injured animal should keep it in a protected box, no food or drink, and bring it to the rescue in the morning. So that was it. I said, okay, baby, you are coming home with me to West Barnstable and headed for the highway. Now I realized that while I was making phone calls, I hadn't heard any noise or movement from the back seat. I became convinced that the baby was either unconscious, dying, or dead. And if he wasn't dead now, he would probably die in the box at my house overnight. I got on the highway, and I was cranking at 65, 70 miles an hour. There was no traffic, it was dark, and I was in the middle of nowhere, and I was tired. I had to set up a box bed when I got home, and mostly, I was very angry at a world that wouldn't help this baby. So, I'm driving like a madwoman down Route 6, and suddenly, I hear a thud on the floor behind me. So there it is. I know he has died and rolled off the seat and fallen to the floor. I felt so badly that I hadn't been able to do anything for him. Now I'm gritching away in my head when I felt a presence to my right. There on the console sat the baby raccoon looking at me. You're not dead! Wait, I'm driving at a high speed with a wild animal loose in the car with me. I started talking softly to him while I tried to make a plan. In the middle of a sentence, he calmly walked over into my lap and sat down between me and the steering wheel looking at me with his face right in front of mine. Now I hoped that he wouldn't remember that he was a wild animal and bite my face off. And I thought about the veterinarian and the rabies. And then suddenly, the most horrific stench filled the car, and my legs felt hot and then wet. This baby had raccoon diarrhea all over my lap. Then I just started laughing at the mental image of this happening while I'm driving down the highway. Well, do you feel better? You must have just had a stomachache. Then he nonchalantly walked over to the passenger seat, gave me a sideways nod, and faced front like we were on a Sunday drive. Well, I guess you are okay. I'll take you home to your mama. I got off at the next exit and drove back to where I had picked him up. He quietly let me wrap him in the blanket again, and I took him over to the spot where I had heard his littermates way back in off the street. I put him down, and he toddled off into the trees. I got back into the car and found one Dunkin' Donuts napkin to clean off my lap. Suddenly, I thought, I need to take a picture of my pants. No one is ever going to believe this. I took the picture, went back onto Route 6, got home to West Barnstable at 12.30 in the morning, and took a very hot shower. But the best part is, whenever I go down Upper County Road and pass that spot, I think of that baby raccoon and I laugh.
You've been listening to four stories featuring, in order of appearance, Paul Dunn, The Gift of Giving, Jane Hadamer Stringer, Wake Up Call, Steve Kramer, Carzheimer's Disease, and Sherry Scudder, Raccoon Story. These stories were first heard as part of an evening entitled Tales and Anecdotes at Woods Hole Theatre Company. This episode was produced and edited by Jay Hagenbuckle and Jane Hadamer Stringer. Cape Noir Radio Theatre, in partnership with Cape Cod Theatre Company, HJT, Kate Pazakis, Artistic Director. Cape Noir on OMR. <laughs>